When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Monday, August 30th, 2021. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Maggie Lake, and today I'm joined by Darius Dale of 42 Macro, who, contrary to popular opinion, was not in Maine this weekend. We'll get more on that in just a minute. First, let's take a look at what we are tracking right now. The S&P 500 notched up another record high. The 12th this month led higher by technology shares. S&P closing with gains of about half a percent. The Nasdaq up 1%. 1%. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's dovish tone at Jackson Hole opened the door to this latest equity move higher. Interestingly, the 10-year yield sticking right around 1.28%. New data out of the U.S. raised questions about just how strong the U.S. economy is. U.S. pending home sales unexpectedly declined for a second month, falling 1.8% month over month. High prices and tight inventories likely led to the drop But this is the latest in what has been a string of data that points to a cooling U.S. economy. And Bitcoin is sitting below 50,000, but holding steady. Famed hedge fund billionaire John Paulson said cryptocurrencies are a bubble that will eventually prove worthless. What's he bullish on? Gold. We're going to break it all down with Darius. But first, Darius, let's clear up the confusion because there were some of your followers on Twitter who are asking you how Maine was. We thought there was maybe a lobster in there. Not the case. (laughs) Hard at work as usual, right? Hard at work as usual this time uh, from the Hamptons. With a with a with a tricky sign behind you, right? That threw us all off. <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep the, gotta keep everybody on their toes. That's right, and, and and keep looking at at all of your sort of signals and charts to to help us figure out what to do. So we are approaching the end of the month. What are your market indicators telling you? What are you focused on? Yeah, I guess the number one thing I'm focused on is just a continuation of what we saw last Friday. I believe we got sort of two important catalysts last Friday. One. We didn't see a material acceleration in core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation metric. And then secondarily, that sort of uh, marginally dovish uh, surprise came uh, was followed up by Chairman Powell effectively confirming everything we've been saying about the Fed really since uh, since he sort of went dovish at the end of last year, at the end of you know in the FOMC meeting in June, uh, which is that, okay, we understand that we've made substantial further progress on inflation. We have not yet made substantial further progress on the uh, labor market uh, goals that the, the Fed has outlined. And that likely means that, okay, we should start talking about tapering and actually get a tapering on the calendar, but we don't actually need to start tapering today. And to me, that last part that we don't need to start tapering today creates an air pocket for the market that should and is likely to be resolved higher in terms of risk assets. Mm. From what you're seeing, do do we... Think that they are going to taper? I mean, is, is that is that priced in, or is that an open question given what we've seen going on in the economy? And the Fed is trying to make them two distinct camps, but it, there seems to be uncertainty about this now. Yeah, and so it's you think about how the Federal Reserve operates as an institution, the people who are loudest in the media tend to be the dissenters, and more importantly, they tend to be the people who aren't are part of the policy setting board. 
No, I, uh, wait, I think you your favorite your favorite Bullard is that? <laughs> I think, yeah, Bullard. Yeah. yeah, he'll be a voter next year though, and so you know his voice does matter, as particularly as we get into the last part of the year. But the reality is, you know, in the last sort of couple of months, and really it's accelerated uh, ever since the advent of the August uh, or the July jobs report. You know, in the last few weeks, it's certainly been taper this, taper that. We got to, you know, get on a path towards normalization. Inflation's way too hot. It might be more persistent than we initially thought. And that's what we've got out of Bullard, Bostic, George, uh, uh, Corita to some de- degree. Um, so that, that's more of the same. But the reality is, is those are the people who are talking to businesses in their respective districts and talking to other academic wonks. The face of the Fed, the guy who has to answer to Congress, the guy who has to answer to teachers, firefighters, you know, people in the real in the real economy, you know, that have been severely impacted by this pandemic in a way that I don't realize, in a human way that many of these academic walks don't realize, is he understands that hey, I have to form a consensus between these hawks and these people who, in theory, need uh, monetary policy to remain loose and accommodative. So I think the easiest way for him to do that is precisely what he did on Friday. Which is acknowledge that we need to get a tapering out there on the calendar, but also not acknowledge that we probably should be, you know, in a hasty, um, you know, hasty path towards getting that done. Yeah, they're in a tricky spot, aren't they? Because what they are, what they, what they are talking to Congress about, looking at, is nothing to do with the global economy, and and that is that that is not consistent at all. The picture when we look at that. Um, you know, whether it's temporary because of what we're seeing with some of the shutdowns, or just longer term. I mean, you, you you're not seeing the the forces in place that would presumably uh, push the Fed's hand. I'm not sure we're going to. When you look at this, anytime I hear Goldilocks, you always get a little bit nervous because you wonder if, if, if it's breeding complacency. I mean, the market seems to have gotten the best of both. They think the economy is still growing, but the Fed is sort of neutral for them right now. Do we run the risk of being complacent with that view? What are you seeing? I mean, the VIX has really calmed down for where we saw it mid-month. What is that telling you? Yeah, so uh, part of the reason I, we've been so bullish at 42 Macro, and this is a dynamic that's carried out for the past couple of months, is the fact that investor consensus is very uncomplacent. You've seen a tremendous amount, and there's a, a variety of ways in which we can sort of measure and map that quantitatively. Um, we have a, a very sophisticated market regime now casting process, and sort of one of the key takeaways of that process is that it's been sig- spitting out a very high degree of signaling neutrality in recent months. Um, if you think about the total number of signals that are being generated right now through the lens of the 42 macro markets that we uh, measure and map daily, you know we're only in a 26 percentile reading for that particular metric. As uh, as early as June or as late as June 3rd, we were at a 99th percentile reading for that metric, meaning and everyone was very clearly and obviously betting on inflation in early June. Now we're down at a 26 percentile reading, which plot which suggests. Investors aren't necessarily over their ski tips in terms of taking risk or making one or more explicit macro bets as it relates to you know growth, inflation, and policy. Uh, the second thing I'd, I'd call out is that you know we continue to so in, in the context of that signal, we we have another indicator, what we call our cross asset correction risk indicator. You know when it's very low, it tends to be signaling a high degree of complacency. If you look at the um, there's been eight twelve there have been twelve eight plus percent corrections in the S and P five hundred since you know the start of two thousand ten. And the median reading for CACRI, you know, at the, right before those corrections, was 16% with an interquartile range of 8%. And we're currently at 67% this morning. And so it's telling you that there actually is not a lot of complacency, that there are most investors are actually concerned about, you know, the sort of change in fiscal policy, potential change in monetary policy, Delta variant and its impact on growth. And oh, by the way, inflation is still very elevated. 
you know, the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, uh, you obviously have, you know, institutional clients, we have clients who are, you know, hedge fund investors, mutual fund investors, pension fund investors, uh, RA investors, we, we, our clients span the gamut. And I haven't talked to a single person in the last two months that's A, as bullish as I am, or B, that's uh, even if they are bullish, that's actually, you know, fully out and allocated uh, and expressing that view in and across markets. Even the bulls have taken chips off the table or are in a much more defensive posture than they would otherwise would be uh, in the context of being bullish. Well, so it's interesting. That's going to be maybe a little bit counterintuitive to people who see and are going to see, you know, stock market at its 12th record high. It's not, it, this is a grind higher, but you're not seeing a lot of people very withholding a lot of conviction that this is that this is going to continue. Do, how much higher do you think it's going to go if you have a bull call? Yeah, I mean, look, the market is <laughs> to me. It's not about where it has to go because I don't think the level is the is the is the risk management call. The risk management call is the duration. Like, how much time do I have to collect the risk premium out of equity markets and credit markets and commodity markets before I actually have to sell some of those assets and raise cash or pivot to more defensive exposures mm -hmm. in different asset classes? So, to me, if you think about, you know, based on everything we know now, particularly about the net liquidity dynamics that are likely to emerge over the next couple of months as Janet Yellen, as Secretary Yellen, starts to throttle back debt issuance and really like go, go to zero, you're right. going to see a pretty meaningful uh, uptick in net liquidity provision out of, out of you know, the federal government, built, you know, through the lens of the Fed's QE program and, and obviously through uh, the Treasury Department. So that, to me, is quite positive. And in the context of positioning and sentiment that, you know, no matter what metric you look at, Goldman Sachs has its sentiment indicator. Uh, there's a CNN fear and greed index. There's the bull AAI bull bear survey. There's all the, you know, the alternative data that we're producing here at 42 Macro. And in the context of that net liquidity provision actually going up over the next couple of months, people just aren't positioned positively enough. So if we're having this conversation two months from now. I would fully be expect, I would fully expect to get on and say, hey, look, no, People are super complacent. The market's up, you know, four or five percent from where it was in, in late August, and I think this is probably a time to take some chips off the table. Mm -hmm. But we're not at that point in the process yet, in my opinion. Uh, so this is a very near-term call. Should we be? Should, how how are how are you I'll, positioning? I'll, I'll say one thing on that: two months is a career in this industry. True. <laughs> yeah, it depends on your it depends on your horizon. Yeah. you could make <laughs> well, it lose a lot like of money in two days, months, right? as we learned last spring, and certainly as we've uh, you know learned throughout this year. So. Uh, continue. My apologies. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. Anyone who's taken a, a much longer view has sort of gotten watched out. It's been very difficult. Those, those old value buy and hold. I think we used to call them. I don't know if uh, hardly any of them are are left. I suppose. Um, You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. When we are, we do have, when we look at the economic data, we, we, we talked about housing starts. We do have a Friday non-farm payroll report coming up. There has been this uh, sort of drumbeat of below expectations, still growing on all accounts, which I think is important to po point out, right? This is not declining activity, but it's slowing down. I think a lot of people understand that to be related to the Delta variant, maybe some of the supply chain disruptions that we are hearing a lot about again, especially when you look at trade and shipping. Uh, but is is that enough? What what are we going to be looking at from the Friday jobs? Or how important will that be? Or are we looking past that now that we heard from Powell? 
Yeah, no, I, I so that's a that's a great question because does this labor market report even matter? And I, I would argue it's probably not going to matter. Um, you know, so we got the in terms of what were the headlines expecting the headlines actually expecting ticking down 200k uh, to 750k month on month. Uh, unemployment ticking down 20 basis points uh, to 5.2%. These are the estimates from Bloomberg. And then the uh, average hourly earning unchanged at 4%. Like when I read that, I'm like, okay, that's like a Goldilocks report. Like not too hot, not too cold, just more of the same. And more of the same continues, uh, keeps us on the same path, policy path uh, that we just recently outlined. So, you know, we had a, a, a very interesting conversation. Peter, Pinkhoven, uh, had a conversation with Real Vision today, uh, Avalon Advisors Chief Economist Samuel Rines, who had some very interesting things to say about the consumer. Let's have a listen. Afghanistan, from an economic perspective, you know, in the first order, isn't that big of a deal, right? It's a $22 billion economy. That's not going to be a shock uh, to the world. Um, it will be a shock from kind of two sides. One, we saw prior to the Afghanistan news, uh, a significant decline in consumer sentiment uh, fell off a cliff. Uh, consumer expectations fell off a cliff. Uh, part of that was due to uh, the Delta variant. Part of that was due to higher prices, bad time to buy a house, bad time to buy a car, etc. Uh, it's not like consumer sentiment is going to get a whole lot better uh, following the F Afghan collapse. That's that's going to continue to be an issue, and that's going to spread into politics, right? You've seen a number of articles about the moderate pushback that uh, Pelosi is beginning to see uh, when it comes to uh, putting further fiscal stimulus through. It's going to continue to be a dominator in terms of the politics moving forward. It's going to be a problem in 2022 for Democrats. I think they know that. Uh, so there's kind of a dual impetus here, right? It's going to be harder for them to get fiscal policy through, but it is now uh, much more important for them to be able to push that through and begin to carve a different narrative uh, moving forward. That was Sam Rines again talking to Peter Pink Hosef. Uh, Real programming note, by the way, Real Vision members can see that interview in its full on the website or app. Um, Darius, he brings up some some interesting points. I mean, you know, for me, historically, Americans do not tend to stay focused on foreign policy issues for very long. I'm not saying it's right. They just don't. But to the extent that it feeds into maybe the further rot in Washington, especially as this fiscal stimulus legislation makes its way through um, or attempts to make its way through, and we head into a conversation, importantly, around the debt ceiling as well, let's not forget about that. Could these sort of, you know, uncertainties lead to um, just an increase in volatility, a concern about really where the consumer's head is? Yeah, no, I don't think that the two are linked. I don't think consumer spending declined meaningfully in, in the month of August as a function of these, this Afghanistan dynamic. It may have been a contributing factor, but certainly a very small contributing factor it would be very, very low in the principal component analysis. But uh, so I think the primary reason consumer spending has been declining for several months now uh, is the fact that one, inflation is very high and it's making it very difficult for people to run out and acquire new, you know, big ticket items, goods and services. Um, and then more importantly, you have the Delta variant, which is restraining the recovery towards normalized service sector demand. Mm -hmm. And so that to me was you know, quite depressing. You know, as we got to the latter part of the summertime, you, know, you just didn't see things as open as you probably would have hoped to see them in July and August heading into you know, the school year and back to work and all that stuff um, in the month of September. So uh, that, those are my thoughts there. But I think in terms of the markets, because I do think uh, Mr. Rines uh, did make up a, bring up a really good point in terms of, you know, okay, let's 
let's use Afghanistan as a prism to discuss what's likely to happen next year in the midterm elections and work our way back from that. Because I, that's the kind of second and third order thinking that I, you know, I, I tend to focus my most of my work on. That we focus on rate of change and what's in, you know how the rate of change impacts asset markets. And so, if you work your way back, you can sort of see that uh, President Biden is losing a lot of sort of ethos in D.C. Part partially as a function of Afghanistan, uh, but you know maybe it's a partially a function of COVID. But there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of reasons why his approval rating chart is arguably the worst looking chart in macro. I mean, it, it literally hasn't had an update in like in weeks or a week in, in weeks. So I mean, that that to me is a big deal as it relates to the three point five trillion dollar budget resolution. Um, which you know, if you think about the amount of debt that's actually been authorized to contribute to that one point seven five trillion, to me that represents the size of the potential haircut. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it's going to be a full haircut of one point seven five trillion, but it could be well over a trillion dollars in terms of that you know package kind of finally coming through because. Both Kristen Sinema, Arizona Senator Arizona, and uh, Joe Manchin, uh, moderate Democrat senator out of, of, of West Virginia, you know, they both expressed, you know, very harsh reservations about the size of the package. So we know the package has to come down, otherwise it's not going to get past the budget resolution process or reconciliation process. Rather, it's just how much and how messy will that dance be? I say this all the time with respect to fiscal policy as investors. Because you know, unless you write a, you know, unless you work for a, a, a journalism agency and it's your job to focus on D.C., you'd be better off actually not watching how the sausage is made in D.C. You know, it's like okay, interpret the headline, ignore it until you get the next headline that contains numbers. The only thing that yeah. matters in D.C. are headlines that contain numbers, and that because the numbers impact uh, economies and asset markets. And uh, I'm I would go further and say, don't don't listen to any of it unless it's written legislation and, and you see them see them sign the bill, because even the headlines that change it, in the end, it's what actually gets done Absolutely. and implemented that have, has any effect. And it's been and been precious. Nothing. I have a, a coffee mug that says, welcome to the shit show. Uh, which is an indication of what my houses look like. But I feel like anybody who's in D.C. ought to just uh, hold that the whole time. Um, but but it does if we do have that prospect of a haircut. We are certainly looking now at, you know, uh, back to the back to the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, where the fiscal, you know, the idea that they could step back as the fiscal policy stepped in to provide support. I mean, I you know, increasingly that's at risk. So, you know, how does that feed into this idea that they're finally going to be able to pull this taper off, which has seemed to me to be doubtful, even though I know they want to. And and this idea that the people who were worried about inflation, I mean, wasn't that what they were worried about, that we were going to get all this reckless spending? Um, does that quiet that debate? Yeah, no, I don't think it has much of an impact on asset markets, because I do believe there is a contingency at the Fed that believes that this sort of transition left to sea change in fiscal policy, that I would argue really began in earnest back in, in 2017 with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, you know, the, there's a contingency at the Fed that believes they're aiding and abetting this sort of profligate policy. And so the bigger the haircut as it relates to the the, you know, the budget resolution, the slower the Fed can be with respect to tapering. The, yeah. the smaller the haircut, i.e. the bigger the package, the more likely it is that the Fed has to actually hurry up and get to zero so they can have some scope and space for actual normalization of interest rate policy. So um, I think it's a net, neg- net neutral for the market from the perspective of policy, because you're either going to have a more hawkish Fed in tapering terms if the package is too big, or if you're going to have a less hawkish Fed in, in terms of the speed of tapering if the package is small and, and adequately haircut from that perspective. So 
Um, I don't think I think it's a nothing burger as it relates to asset markets because again we all know we're going to get some uh, budget resolution. They have the ability to do reconciliation, and it's more likely that we do get some physical infrastructure on the other side of that. So that that's a uh, you know those are both positive catalysts at the margin, and I think the negativity that could potentially stem out from the haircut will be offset by the speed of the the, the Fed taper. Yeah. And, and there are, of course, plenty of people as well who think the Fed isn't looking at anything that's relevant and has completely lost the plot or the power to actually impact I, any of the policies they say they do. But that's a whole gigantic I, conversation. I push against those people. And I know it's not you, but I think the I think Jay Powell has done a masterful job at managing what has been a complete poop show, uh, part of my language, mm. both economically and politically in this country. Um, and then abroad as well. Obviously, the pandemic is not pandemic to the United States of America. Um, so in terms of like, you know, why he's I think he's been adequately dovish with respect to understanding the transitory nature. And again, transitory and rate of change terms, i.e. we're already decelerating on an annualized basis. We're going to start to show persistent dis- disinflation on a year over year rate of change basis. And I think he understood that. Uh, he, he, You know, his view on that is very similar to ours. We have um, you know, some of the world's best econometric models that project growth and inflation. And so we're very much in line with him. But I think in terms of the labor market, going back to Friday's uh, print, you know, there are three very important metrics that I think he's focused on that, and he's been adequately focused on. And more importantly, if you've been a bond bull like we have this year, or if you've been bullish on stocks and risk assets, and particularly the defensive sectors and style factors therein, like we have, you understand these three metrics. Number one, the employment to population ratio. That was 58.4% in July. That's down 270 basis points from where it peaked uh, in January of 2020. Uh, number two, the labor force participation rate for prime working age adults. That's the 25 to 54 year old uh, labor force participation rate. That's at 81.8% in July. That's down 120 basis points from its January 20 uh, cycle peak of 83%. And then lastly, you have the number of people, the number of human beings that are out of work due to the pandemic. And I got that number at 9 million. There's 3 million additional unemployed people. Uh, that's at 8.7 million now. And you have an additional 6 million people who dropped out of the labor force altogether. And that's only at $153 million or 150 million people. So, you know, I think when you combine those three metrics, it's extremely clear that the Fed has not achieved substantial further progress. And if you really want to get bullish, and this to me is the most bullish dynamic of them all as it relates to, you know, what Jay Powell has been looking at relative to his peers at the Fed. And I think you have to sort of unpack the unemployment rate by race statistics. Um, the Fed obviously transitioned last August to a maximum and inclusive, and I put and inclusive in all caps because to me it's one of the most important dynamics in, in monetary policy history. The Fed is trying to solve racism with monetary policy. I don't think they're going to be successful, but they certainly will try, and they have tried to the tune of $120 billion a month of asset purchases. So um, just uh, summarizing this, this thought, uh, unemployment rate for, for uh, whites, Caucasians was 4.8% in July. That's actually up 100 basis, 180 basis points off of its January 2020 cycle peak. Um, if you look at Hispanics, that's up you know 180 basis points higher than that at 6.6% uh, in July, up 260 basis points off. It's the September 19 cycle low of, of 4%, 4.0%. And then lastly, uh, the unemployment rate for African-Americans is 8.2%, so nearly double, almost double that of of the employment rate for whites. That was 8.2% in July. That's up 300 basis points off its August 19 cycle low. So uh, you're still seeing an incredible amount of dispersion in the labor market, particularly as it relates to some of the more disaffected, um, you know, genders, races, things of that nature, you know, including women as well. So um, the Fed doesn't need to be in a hurry. Been saying that all the whole time. I think Jay Powell confirmed that on Friday. 
And I think at the bare minimum, he's giving investors an additional couple months at the, at the bare minimum of upside risk uh, to risk assets. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up such an interesting point because if you listen to any of the of the presidents, you hear them talk about that inclusivity, where they've been spending their times in low income neighborhoods. Um, the Dallas Fed Kaplan has been um, looking at some of the indicators he's looking at, including rent prices. Um, have to do with those communities. So I think you're right. I think that's where their focus is. Um, is it a, is it a, you know, can it help us understand what's happening at the Fed? I don't know. You're right. This is, these, these are not my opinions, but we know there is a healthy debate about that. And, and for, for anyone who's interested, um, we're going to have an interview on with Jeff Snyder, uh, later this week on Real Vision. Um, I had to go down the rabbit hole after I talked to him and I wish I could, maybe I'll follow up and see if I can get some responses because he has some really interesting thoughts about the limitations of what the Fed's able to do. doesn't mean they don't matter. It doesn't mean they're not looking at the right things, but mm -hmm. I think that there are some dynamics in the markets that have shifted and that there, there isn't necessarily open communication about it. Very compelling ideas about that, about money supply, about what's happening with collateral that I encourage everyone to go look at because I think it, it's certainly instructional and is helping me think about it in a different way. Um, and, and it is, there are topics that are going to come up, but, but speaking about collateral and we're not going to get dive in, down that rabbit hole right now, but there was a really interesting debate that sort of sprung up, uh, around cryptocurrencies versus gold. And I'm mm -hmm. saying versus, because that seems to be at least what some think there is. And we had a billionaire, John Paulson come out and say, not just sort of, you know, cast doubt on cryptocurrencies, but really slam them in an interview with David Rubenstein saying, I would describe them as a limited supply of nothing. There's no intrinsic value to any of the cryptocurrencies, except that there's a limited amount. Now, it's important to note, John Paulson you know, made billions in the big bet against housing in the movie, The Big Short. Um, his track record since then has been certainly mixed. He closed his hedge fund. It's a family office now. And he's been in gold for a decade and, and on the losing end of that sometimes. So, you know, with, with that caveat out there, um, what are you seeing when you look at, let's, let's take Bitcoin. He said all cryptos, and there's a, a, a very healthy debate about that. But if we just look at Bitcoin, what are your charts telling you? Because we got above, we, we came back, retraced, got above that 50,000 level, have moved back down. Um, but we're kind of sitting right there. What are you seeing? Is it going to break out either way, one side to the other here? Yeah, no, I mean, so we would expect it. So I, as recently as last week or two weeks ago, I said, if we stay in this Goldilocks market regime or if Goldilocks dominates the market regime process between now and the end of September, middle of October, I think it's very likely you see Bitcoin, one, um, push past its resistance. We're going to hit some resistance when we get back to 65,000, but eventually push past that, form a base there and be, be on its way to 100,000. I mean, I still believe that is the most likely scenario um, in the context of all the net liquidity dynamics that we've been talking about uh, in our recent work. Uh, so Bitcoin is currently bullish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. Um, in terms of our probable range, we got 4% near-term downside to 46,000 roughly, and about 13% near-term upside to 55,000. So uh, definitely a decent spot to be accumulating a little bit more Bitcoin exposure here uh, in the context of that medium-term view. Medium-term view. Okay, so so de definitely not agreeing with John Paulson in his- No, I, I tend not to. Look, I, 
let me start by saying John Paulson's worth at least a billion dollars. So I'm not going to say anything negative about him (laughs) (laughs) from the perspective of an investor, but I do find, you know, there's a, there's a certain type of macro fund manager that my work and and, the work of others, you know, like me tends to sort of be on the other side of, Now we are very data driven and process driven and everything we do at 42 macro is one backed by math and two is very repeatable. Everything we do, can we do every day, every week, every month. Um, I think there's a different style of macro investors that, you know, that can make a ton of money on one trade, but then wind up, as we've just seen over the last 10 to 12 years, lose you a lot of money because they lack the process, they lack the acumen, they lack the system, the, the systematic nature of what they're doing, and it's not ultimately repeatable. And I would put John Paulson, and, and, and God bless him in all his billions of dollars, because I don't mean this negatively, but I would certainly put him in that different camp. He's just a different style of macro investor. So it's quite likely that I will always have differentiated views from someone like that, because those views tend to be updated on a much longer lag if they're updated at all. I mean, <laughs> it is what yeah. it is. That, that's, a, that's a great way to put it, Darius. What about what about gold? What are we looking at there? Because we did see uh, that move higher as well. You know, break above eighteen hundred. A lot of people thought that was a bullish signal. Hasn't really moved much beyond that. What are you seeing there? Yeah, so gold's currently neutral from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. Um, our profitable range has about 2% near-term downside to 1776, uh, with only about 30 basis points of near-term upside to 1815. So if you're low on gold here, it's a good spot to, to, to sell some, books and gains. Or if you're, you want to be short gold, uh, this would be a great spot to put, put the short back on. Um, you know, The number one risk factor you have to uh, think about when you're talking about gold is obviously the direction of real interest rates. In terms of how we derive the volatility adjustment in our volatility adjusted momentum signal process for gold, that that metric anchors on the 10-year tips yield. Um, so a breakout in the 10-year tips yield north of uh, minus 93 basis points that would signal that would catalyze a downgrade to bearish uh, from the perspective of gold in that in that model. So that would open up a lot more near-term and immediate-term or intermediate-term downside. So. Um, you know, we, we're, we're practically neutral on gold. You know, we, we recently uh, sold it in our portfolio construction guidance. Um, yeah, but I want to say last, not last Saturday, but two Saturdays ago. Um, you know, don't have a strong view one way or another. I do believe, in, and on interest rates, I do believe the path of least resistance is likely higher over the you know next couple of months, just mm-hmm. in the context of the markets and you know transitioning to, to more risk on than they have been in recent months. But ultimately, I, I don't know that you're going to get this big breakout in interest rates, you know, and this big, you know, big recovery and sustained, like trending recovery in cyclical sectors and style factors, and a big breakout in nominal oil interest rates, because again, you don't have those dynamics economically to support that, like what we saw in the first half of the year. Growth was accelerating to the moon. Inflation was accelerating to the moon. You know, you had people taking all kinds of risks in SPAC, crypto, things, you know, Kathy Wood stocks, everything. Mm-hmm. And so you just don't have that now. You know, for interest rates to go from 128 on the 10 year to 180, you know, I think you could easily get to 140, but I think that's probably it. So, that, you know, that, that's what I'll say about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we we haven't talked at all about bonds and they are going to be terribly important as, as we move through this week. I just want to end and ask you about September. Um, it seems like, you know, we're talking about Goldilocks, there's a lot of neutral readings, but we know September is an incredibly volatile month historically. I mean, August lately as well. But as yeah. we enter into September, you know, it 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 gives you a reason to pause. Um, is there anything you see that worries you? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing that worries me is more it's it's less fundamental. And so in terms of our, our we have you know this 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 bottom-up macro regime signaling process that's trying to relate the rate of change of growth really with, with the rate of change of inflation. 
And in terms of that process, we've been very far from the origin. I'll tweet the chart out. We've been very far from the origin since all going all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic. And what that means is growth and inflation are having a much more outsized influence on the direction and dispersion within asset markets than things like policy and positioning. We're actually, we transitioned in July to a state of, you know, where policy and positioning are really the only things that are driving asset markets because you don't have these big outsized deltas in growth and inflation for investors to point to. Now, you have high inflation and you still have a high level of growth, but they're not necessarily the change in those rates is actually not changing at a, at a meaningful enough state to actually have a big market impact. So, in terms of the month of September, to answer your question, I think it's more of the same in terms of policy and positioning driving the boat. I think there's some negative things that could happen from a policy perspective if you sort of want to, you know, kind of watch how the sausage is made in DC. Um, you could easily get a government shutdown at the end of next month. Um, if they don't pass a continuing resolution, we're obviously going to breach the debt ceiling sometime between September 30th and mid-November, and that ultimately means, you know, that you know that process could be, you know, rife with all kinds of sort of political back and forth. Um, I don't, I would be very, I don't expect to see a downgrade of the U.S. debt in the middle of a pandemic, but um, you never know. Somebody might get fired at Moody's or S and P or something for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of career risks in making that call here, um, but you know that you could. And so that's the kind of stuff that I think could spook markets. But going back to our initial discussion, that's the kind of stuff that crashes markets or really causes a lot of pain for investors yep. when positioning is out over its ski tips. When positioning like it is right now, which is very neutral at the bare minimum, maybe even slightly bearish from the perspective of most investors across the buy side, particularly the funds that have more variable leverage profiles, CTAs, mm -hmm. quants, macro funds, nobody in that space is taking a ton of risk right now. So how do you get a real meaningful market decline associated with a political headline that isn't necessarily fundamental or necessarily trending? I just don't think it's likely to happen. So yeah, you're going to continue to get three, five, you know, maybe even a six percent pullback. But I certainly think that the path of least resistance is by the end of middle, the end of September, middle of October, we should be much higher at risk. All right, Darius, deal with it all. And as usual, Darius, uh, as well as all the folks here, we will get those charts out and tweet them to you so you can uh, go back and, and look at them while we're here in this conversation. Darius, thank you so much. Great to see you. Great to see you, Maggie. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.